We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Um, excuse me, isn't there anything here that doesn't have meat in it? Possibly the meatloaf. Well, I believe you're required to provide a vegetarian alternative. You probably recognize that voice as Lisa Simpson, the smart saxophone-playing sister of Bart and daughter of Homer and Marge at the heart of The Simpsons. That voice belongs to Emmy Award-winning actress Yardley Smith. Yardley has been playing Lisa Simpson since the show began, for which she's won critical acclaim. In more recent years, Yardley has been using her highly recognizable voice to amplify other voices, like those in the LGBT community. Just one note, this conversation with Yardley was recorded in our studios back in early March, so before the pandemic and before recent protests. Welcome, Yardley. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. You are probably best known as the voice of the eight-year-old Lisa Simpson. And so our listeners know, The Simpsons is currently airing a record-breaking 31st season and has been renewed for a 32nd. So congratulations. Thank you very much. It really, we are the unicorn of all unicorns when it comes to primetime television shows. I mean, we've really broken every record, as you say. First, so there are a number of milestones to pass. First, there was Gunsmoke, which had 20 seasons. <laughs> but Ozzie and Harriet had more episodes, not as many seasons, because I think Ozzie and Harriet was on four or five days a week. So they had 400-plus episodes, but now we're at over 700. So we've literally blown past everyone. One of the first milestones was MASH, of course, because they were on for... I don't know, I want to say 12 seasons. And then the next one was Gunsmoke. Everybody thought, oh, my God, 20 seasons. How are we going to get past that? Okay, well, here we are. And then the number of episodes. I mean, it just has been a gift in every way. So Lisa has never changed. She's still eight years old. But has she grown in any way over the years? I think definitely. I do think one of the funniest things is is that she's eight, and then every time she has a birthday, she turns eight, and we just don't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Although we recently did an episode where she gets excited about turning nine (laughs) and she's nine for about three minutes and I went to one of the showrunners I said does that mean that she's going to be nine from now on he goes oh no Yardley don't be silly that's ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) but in terms of her heart and her mind despite the fact that we're all frozen in time in on the Simpsons with the exception of the the occasional flash forward where you know Lisa becomes president or (laughs) various things like that I think that Lisa has grown in her resilience, in her empathy, in her optimism. One of the things I admire most about Lisa Simpson is that resilience and the fact that there's no martyrdom attached to it. Mm. You know, she really pulls up her socks and gets on with it without a kind of poor me attitude, just to kind of, okay, all right, well, that didn't work out. Meanwhile, nothing ever works out for Lisa Simpson. (laughs) But she's just sort of like, I'm going to try it a different way. I love that. Because I was going to ask you, after playing a character for so many years, you know, are there pieces of her personality that have woven into yours and vice versa? 
I think definitely. I think, you know, Lisa Simpson is the best part of me, I like to think. Like, she is, she's who I would like to be when I grow up, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm a terrible worrier. We have episodes every so often where she worries, but mostly she kind of has a, oh, I can do that, you know, she kind of just goes forth. And I don't also think that you can play a character for as long as I've played Lisa Simpson and and not have there be some enmeshment. Mm. I often liken it to getting to know a, a real live human being mm. and a, a really good friend. And so it also means, though, that when the show ends, you know, we're probably about halfway through, <laughs> when that day, I think that will be a really, actually a really sad time. It will be a little bit like a dear, dear friend has moved away and is never mm. coming back. I feel like there will be a genuine grieving period for me. Have you thought about what you'll do with that, that time? Part of the plan was, because I, I am a worrier and I'm a planner, is I wanted to try to have something else in place that would occupy my mind and hopefully some of my passion so that I wasn't completely, this vacuum wasn't created and I wasn't left sort of high and dry going, oh God, now what? So I have this production and development company called Paperclip Limited, which I founded with my business partner, Ben Cornwell, and we're about five years old now. And so who knows how long, much longer The Simpsons goes, but in some ways, the fact that Paperclip is already five years old, the more established it is, I think the less jarring that transition will be. Yes, I could occupy all the working hours of the day at Paperclip, even without The Simpsons, but emotionally, I think it'll just be really sad transition for me. I think it will be hard. Hmm. That's smart that you have the vision, though, to set something up while you still have a current gig. Like, How did you get that foresight? Because um, there were periods in my life when I didn't do that and I really faltered. In my early career, which took off like a rocket, right? Mm -hmm. The first 12 years were unbelievable where I graduated from high school. Three days later, I got a job at a good theater in Washington, D.C. That led to these crazy, incredible reviews in the Washington Post and the Washington Times, and which led to more jobs, et cetera, et cetera. A year later, I'd moved to New York. Six weeks after my arrival in New York, I was understudying Cynthia Nixon on Broadway, you know, in a play directed by Mike Nichols, starring Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close. The play was the real thing. And it just sort of went on like that for about 12 years where, and I kept doing movies and I was doing television and I got an agent fairly easily and um, and I got The Simpsons. I actually got The Simpsons in a great way. I was doing a play, a new play, at a tiny little black box theater in Los Angeles in 1986. And literally, I think, honest to God, like 21 people saw that play. But one of them, a year later, would cast The Simpsons on The Tracy Ullman Show mm. and remembered me and said, I know who should play Lisa Simpson. So, again, like things like that just kept happening. Yeah. And it wasn't, I feel like, opportunity presented itself and I stepped up to the plate, right? It's not that I didn't have to work hard because opportunity can present itself all over the place. But if you don't work for it, mm -hmm. if you don't work once you get are given that chance, then the opportunity can go away pretty quickly. True. But when I reached about 32, I started working when I was like 17, 
my on-camera career really started to falter. And I think it was many things. I think it was, you know, the business was changing and you and I didn't look as young as I used to. I still looked incredibly young. But at that point, I had already been divorced once. And if you put me next to an actual you know, 17-year-old, I didn't look 17. Mm. Like, there was just something in the eyes, right? You see too much. <laughs> and so it's a little bit too much life in there. <laughs> yeah. So it was sort of becoming de rigueur to have to be this multi-hyphenate. You were like an actor, writer, director, any, or any combination of those things. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be just the actor who went to the audition and got the part. And I did, was not fast in adapting, and the artifact of being so successful at such a young age without any formal training and sort of, like I said, being shot out of this cannon was that I, I sort of, I was like a house with no foundation. So when things started to kind of not go as planned, and I had attached my identity to my work, I am what I do. So then when you don't get to do what you do as often and as much as you would like, who are you? Mm. And it created a legitimate sort of, you know, identity crisis for me. And it took me, I'm not talking like, oh, well, you know, so for about a year or maybe, you know, 18 months, I kind of floundered around. I'm, I was like eight years mm. where I just was sort of, I dug my heels in and I thought, what is happening why am I not even getting auditions anymore? Mm. And why am I going to these auditions and I'm not getting the job? Like I used to get a pilot every pilot season. And I really, really couldn't figure it out. And at the end of the day, I don't think there was anything to figure out. I think that, that things were changing and I was not able to change with them. So I never wanted to find myself in that position again. I never wanted to find myself basically at a place in my life that, where I hadn't created some balance. And so Paperclip is part of creating the balance. The success of The Simpsons has given you great financial success as well. Several years ago, you and your castmates banded together to negotiate higher pay, which you ultimately got. And in more recent years, the cast has taken a pay cut to help keep the series going. Wondering, what did you learn about negotiation from these very public pay disputes and discussions? <laughs> well, it's really interesting to have your pay negotiations have a, like a bullhorn about it in the press. We certainly did not come out unscathed. We were the, you know, greedy, overpaid cast members for many of those highly publicized negotiations. And so the lesson is that if you are not empowered to tell your side of the story, then it certainly behooves you to remember who you are and why you stand for what you stand for. And whether or not the public actually learns everything because you have, again, not been necessarily empowered to tell your side of the story, then, and now with, you know, the internet, it's so easy for people to kind of bully you online mm. or welcome themselves to an opinion of how you're doing, what you're doing, or that yeah. you shouldn't get paid that much or whatever the case may be. You have to surround yourself with people who know who you are and what you stand for, that you do have integrity. What they were telling us behind the scenes was nobody cares about you. Nobody, nobody sees you. So you're not that valuable to your role, right? You're just a voice. And... Um, 
we really bet the farm on the fact that by the time we went, I think it was about season nine that we all banded together as a cast, and that was just happenstance that all of our contracts were up at the same time. Previously, that had not happened, so we didn't have this advantage. So um, much like the Friends cast all banded together, right, there's strength in numbers, and we really bet everything on the fact that the fans were attached to the not only the sound of the characters that they had fallen in love with, but the the heart and the soul that the actors bring to them, right? Which is much more amorphous, mm-hmm. much more sort of ethereal, and you can't really pin it down. But we were like, ah, I think it's really more the whole package. So you said in the past that it's taken you years to value your work as a voiceover artist. And I'm wondering, did getting paid more and sort of doing it as a group, you know, teaming up with colleagues, did that help you change your view of your own value? I don't think that actually was a factor. Um, it was, it really had everything to do with the fact that still today, there is a kind of a um, a, a murmur campaign behind um, in show business that voiceover is a kind of a, a second-rate art hmm. and that it's not as um, difficult or immersive as, say, being on camera or being on stage because people don't see your physical being. So I got The Simpsons through my theatrical agent, um, But I, too, in my plan for world domination, which I sort of forged when I was about seven, (laughs) did not include voiceover. So when I got Lisa Simpson, I was kind of like, eh, I don't really want to do voiceover, but all right, look, I'm never a person to turn down work. And then when it sort of started to become my legacy, my thing, my everything, as the rest of my career started to kind of fall away on camera, I was pretty unhappy that maybe this was the way I was going to be remembered because I, too, believed that voiceover was kind of this, um, it had a kind of a pejorative connotation to it. And mm-hmm. so um, it it was about, it was probably about a decade, you know, as I said, I'm a slow learner, where I remember being in a recording session and being kind of grumpy that I was there. And I thought, Yardley, this is on you. This is an extraordinary opportunity. You happen to actually love the character that you play. Why are you such a sourpuss? Hmm. So pull up your socks. And I don't know if you're allowed to swear on your podcast, but pull up your socks and get your together Mm -hmm. and turn it around. Mm -hmm. So I did that. So you've spoken about how you've struggled with feelings of perfectionism. And so I'm just wondering... Have you been able to resolve those feelings? Yes, very much so. You know, perfectionism, I feel like, is a lifelong addiction. Um, I can't remember a time I I didn't feel that way. And so one wonders, as a child, you know, where does that come from? Are you you just born with it? Mm. Do you come out already baked with that being (laughs) one of your ingredients? I mean, (laughs) egad. Um, Now, certainly at 55, you know, I feel like... What I know for a fact is perfectionism doesn't serve me. It doesn't, I don't think it serves anyone because there's never any satisfaction, right? Perfection is sort of unattainable. And so 
Because if you're a perfectionist, trust me, you never actually achieve something and go, oh, that was perfect. It's never enough. Mm. So it's the never enoughness that will rob you of the value of every experience, will rob you of your achievements, will also make you attach shame to whatever feeling of failure you have about something that didn't work out exactly the way you planned. For me, it's so much better than it was, but I certainly still have my moments where I feel like I fall back into those patterns. And I co-host a true crime podcast now called Small Town Dicks, and I edit that podcast. We have two editors, but I edit on paper, and I really literally have to catch myself and say, okay, Yardley, you've got to let this one go. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Nobody's going to know this is a pickup. It's going to be all right, right? But... You know, I, I know mean, you know, Veronica. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. mean, you're I feel like, that. <laughs> you just like you just want it to be just so. Yeah, no, I got it. So we it's all a, want the best. It, yeah. Right? We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Yardley talks about how she's amplifying the voices of others in her true crime podcast and through her production company, Paperclip. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Yardley, as you mentioned, you are now the co-host of a podcast that you started, you co-created, called Small Town Dicks. I have to ask you, tell us about that name. Uh, I co-host with um, identical twin detectives, Dan and Dave. And it was actually Dan who came up with Small Town Dicks, and Dicks obviously being the noir slang for detective back in the 40s. But now, you know, the younger you are, the less you are apt to know what that (laughs) reference is. (laughs) But I had a co-host when we first started the podcast, and now it's just me and Dan and Dave. And um, But all of our cases are told by the detectives who investigated them. And you get a lot more firsthand accounts on TV, obviously two entire networks dedicated solely to Mm -hmm. true crime. Um, But you didn't have a lot of that in the podcast space uh, when we started two and a half years ago. We're in season six, but we do about two seasons a year. So here's a cute story. It's a meet cute story. So how did I meet Detectives Dan and Dave? So I was the guest of honor at a Simpsons event at Detective Dan's small town. And I can't tell you what it is because on our podcast, we don't tell you the names of the suspects or the victims or where the crime took place in order to protect everybody involved. So I was the guest of honor at the Simpsons event, and Dan was my security detail from the local PD. Dan has a, a, a quiet stillness to him and a real a quiet, in no way overbearing authority, which I found so impressive. Dave is exactly the same way. And so anyway, we hit it off and we started chatting and then texting and then we started dating. Meanwhile, he still lived a thousand miles away. So for two and a half years, I commuted up to his small town Mm -hmm. to see him. And 
when I would go up there, Dave, of course, who lived a block away, because they're twins, people, identical twins. <laughs> and they used to be, Dan is now retired, but they were twins at the same police agency sitting across the bullpen from each other in the detective pool. Funny. I mean, it's just too good. Too if you good. put that on TV, people are like, oh, come on. <laughs> That's just too cute, right? So when I would go and visit Dan, Dave would, of course, come over, and they would sit on the couch, and they would just download their day. And I was like, oh, my God, your Thursday is so much more interesting and harrowing and just (laughs) unbelievable than my any any day. And so when I was with my former co-host and Dan and we were all sort of together and Dan was telling one of his stories and it just seemed like a natural fit that this should be a podcast. Uh, That's such a sweet story. I love that. That's really cute. Yeah. And now we're going to get married. Yay! That's oh, my yay! gosh. Whee! That's so great. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. What has the experience of starting a project from the ground up and producing it yourself been like? I love that. People ask me this all the time with the podcast because we're now quite successful and it's it's taken some doing um, because the true crime space is quite crowded, mm. right? But part of it is that Everybody wants to talk to Lisa Simpson. Thank goodness. Uh, hooray. <laughs> and then I say, yes, I'd love to talk to you. Let's also talk about the podcast, yeah. as you've so graciously agreed to do, Veronica. But whether or not it was just our mothers listening, I love this project so much that we would still do it. Mm. You know, the podcast is not profitable. Mm. We do have ads. We make some money, but we don't make a profit. So, and we did just recently set up a Patreon page. Some Patreon pages have many scales. We just, it's $5 a month, which is so low. And, but what's great is we take that equally seriously, right? So we curate very different content for our Patreon subscribers than we do on the main feed. So all of those things, like you cannot give any piece of whatever it is you're doing short shrift. Mm. I really think you have to set the bar high and keep the bar high. So true crime, as you said, it's a crowded space and it's also super popular among women. And it has been that way for a couple of years. Why do you think women especially gravitate to this genre? It's such a good question. Part of it is, I think, is that we're so often the victim Hmm. of the crime. And there's a kind of voyeuristic, like, oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Mm. And... But I also think, speaking for myself anyway, I like the good guys to win. And so, you know, what I love about Small Town Dicks is we only do cases that are adjudicated. We've done a couple of cases about bad cops as well. But the good guys won even in catching one of the bad ones Mm. within, right, within the organization. And so if there are people in the world who are not interested and feel no compunction to follow the rules that the rest of us follow in order for society to function well, then I want to know that there's also another group of people that's equally dedicated to putting that train back on the tracks. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your advocacy work and how you use your voice to help others. You're known as a major ally of the LGBTQ community. Last year, you were honored by the Human Rights Campaign for your work in the community. Was there a moment where you felt like, this is my cause, I'm really passionate about helping this community? Um, Yes, there was the moment when Proposition 8 uh, passed in California, and I think that was in 2008, and I had done a, a film that I had produced with Dustin Lance Black, who had won the Academy Award for his screenplay for Milk. And Lance Black is also, he's obviously a huge advocate 
for his community, the LGBTQ community, and um, very vocal. And he basically introduced me to a man named Chad Griffin, who is also a gay man who um, had worked in the Clinton White House and had had sort of gotten together with Rob Reiner, who's also very politically active, and said, uh, this cannot stand. We cannot, this can't be. Like, you you can't have said that same-sex couples could marry in California and then change your mind a few years later and go, oh, no, actually, no, we changed our mind. Mm. Like, that's not okay. And so they came to me, and they said, Yardley, would you be interested in getting involved? And I said, yes, of course. And so I sat down and had breakfast with Lance and Chad, and literally I was I was in in like five minutes once I sort of knew more about what the fight was. And then I was just all in because really at the end of the day, I feel like you, you just can't cherry-pick people's human rights. Mm. You don't get to have it and then tell me I can't have it right? just because, because you don't believe in the way I live my life. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the projects you have in the works related to the LGBTQ community and how advocacy group GLAD has helped? Yes. Um, and, and, you know, at Paperclip, the mandate really was we wanted to be the people to say yes first because it's so hard to get something off the ground in show business. And so one of the great gifts of The Simpsons is that it's given me so many opportunities, and one of them is that Paperclip actually has a budget. So we're able to produce the podcast. We're able to pay a writer. We can't produce, you know, a $15 million film, but we can probably get your script and your production to the person who could do that, right? Mm So we came across a, a beautiful script called Gossamer Folds, written by Bridget Flannery, who she wrote it like 10 years ago. And somebody had optioned it for a while and was going to do it and never got done. And, and then a friend of mine brought it to us, and I fell in love with it. And I said, let's, yes, let's do this. Let's do it right now. But it's me, you know, I'm a middle-aged white woman and three middle-aged white men who are my producers who are we're all straight. So we didn't know what we didn't know. So we went to GLAD because the story is about a trans woman who befriends a little boy who moves in next door. And, and really, they just sort of find this connection in their misfitness. There's just kind of this funny, odd, quirky friendship that they have. And so we went to GLAD and said, tell us what the pitfalls are. They have a lot of programs, and one of their arms is helping media serve the community. Mm-hmm. They were quite helpful. They gave us a, a bunch of notes, and then we set about casting it, and we cast this extraordinary actress. She really was the first tape that we saw. Her name is Alexandra Gray. She's a trans actress. Um, she's absolutely phenomenal in it. I can't wait for people to see her. Um, Jackson Robert Scott from It plays a little boy, Mm. and we shot it in Louisiana. So that's one story. But what I liked about it was it wasn't so much that it was a story about a trans woman. It was that it was a story about two people who um, find this odd friendship and don't know where they fit in, which I think is a universal a universal uh, issue in as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. We've all had periods in our lives when we didn't know where we fit in and if anybody really got us. And so that's what I loved about it. And really, again, at the end of the day, it is, it's okay to be different and you will find your way. Just keep going. Just keep doing what you're doing. 
Um, last question. If I can ask you to do Lisa's voice for a moment, oh, if sure. you would, that would be awesome. What would Lisa Simpson say about everything you've done? Ah, uh, Lisa Simpson, um, it's odd to ask your uh, alter ego to compliment you on your, your own <laughs> life's work. Let's see. I hope that Lisa Simpson would be proud of me. I hope she would say, Yardley, you, you've done a good job. I know you've had a, you got a few notches in your cane, but you know what? You're landing on the right side of stuff, and uh, that's pretty much all you can ask for. I'm really proud of you. I'm proud that our heart and our mind have melded. I do like that. I enjoy being in your brain and in your heart. It's good for me. Thank you so much for joining us, Yardley. Veronica, you are a delight. I am so pleased and delighted to have been here. We recorded this episode at the beginning of March, but we reached out to Yardley this week following the Supreme Court decision ruling that prohibits workplace discrimination against LGBT workers. I was so surprised so excited, but floored, really, by the Supreme Court decision to add employment protections for the LGBTQ plus community to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 on Monday. I've always said I don't think that you get to cherry pick people's human rights just because they're different from you. And while this is progress and cause for celebration, one should also put the ruling into perspective because the Civil Rights Act of 64 is obviously over 50 years old. And it is only today that the LGBTQ community has been included in the statute. I would love to see the Supreme Court go further and pass the Equality Act next, which extends non-discrimination protections across the board to the LGBTQ plus community. If you'd like to hear more inspiring secret stories, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trine Noree. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Bray Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Hang in there, secrets listeners. You've got this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>